joining us here on the Legal Technology Review Podcast. It's your resource for tools and technology for legal professionals. I'm your host, Brian Folk, civil litigator and author of The Cyber Advocate. Uh, joining us today is Mr. Larry Port, the CEO of Rocket Matter, the legal technology solutions. That's, it's more than just a practice management and accounting software. Now, you guys do a lot of stuff over there, don't you? Yes, we do. We do uh, basically... Uh you know, we see us as we see, we see ourselves as helping lawyers make their lives a whole lot easier. And um, so we started with practice management time and billing, and you know, we're we're going from there. Well, definitely want to talk more about that in just a minute. But one thing I noted, uh, you've been speaking a lot recently about uh, the issue of cybersecurity, and it's a topic that I've found myself writing a lot about lately. Um, it seems coming on the heels of what it seems like about 18 months of continuous reports, new cyber attacks. Uh, the most recent, you know, big one that we've heard of was the four years worth of information stolen from the United States government. Uh, what, in your mind, are the biggest legal risks or uh, biggest real risks facing law firms today in the cybersecurity area? Well, I think ultimately everything kind of comes down to, you know, their duties to keep things quiet and confidential. And, you know, obviously that's their risk is that they uh, are are tasked with keeping their client information confidential and all that kind of stuff secret. They're, the other issue is that, you know, they're these are respected and trusted people. They, they manage money that's not theirs. They manage secrets that's not theirs. So... Um, I think law firms have to be very sensitive to what's going on out there and, and really start thinking about how they're keeping their information and whether it's secure or not. Have you found, this This has been interesting to me, is every time that I've written about uh, cybersecurity-related issues or spoken about them, it's easy to scare people with what's really out there, but I've found that the scaring attorneys isn't necessarily enough to induce them to do something about it. Has that been your experience? I don't know. I mean, you know, the, the, I, I would agree with you that there's a lot of fear out there. And um, there's a lot of misinformation because of that fear. Because once you have somebody afraid of something, you can kind of like lead them around um, like you can lead a horse around. So it's a very dangerous thing to use fear to kind of manipulate people. And look, I mean, there are the good news is, is that there's a lot of things that people can do to protect themselves. And, um, you know, the bad news is, is that there's a lot of activity going on out there. But I, I think people have to really understand what is exactly happening out there to, to truly me- measure whether or not they're at risk or not. Now, whether or not people still don't act on things, whether or not attorneys still don't act on things, I mean, the one thing that is, is, is generally a theme in legal technology is um, kind of a slow-to-adopt technology nature of your typical attorney. Not attorneys like you, of course, um, or other kind of like more cutting edge technology attorneys, but um, the early majority, the late majority of, um, of, of attorneys are not so quick to adopt things. They're very precedent driven, so they really want to see what other people are doing before they make the leap themselves. So even though they might be kind of nervous about something, you know, they're hearing it from all sides. They're hearing it from their IT person. They're hearing it from maybe somebody they heard at a um, bar convention and and whatever other little tidbits they're hearing online, and I think it's very difficult for them to know what to do and, and what kind of decision to make. Do you think that comes from a, 
a more natural inability to delegate that lawyers have. Uh, one thing that strikes me is that you can't always necessarily compare a law firm to most other types of business because most other types of business are run by someone who views their primary job as running the business. I think most lawyers would view their job as being a lawyer. And running running the business kind of comes secondary, especially if for lawyers who uh, whose business is based on an hourly billing so such that work on your business is necessarily then time that you're not making money. Do you think that sort of plays in somewhat to the uh, inability of lawyers to process the digital threats the same way as other businesses? I suppose so. Um, I, I don't I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, even if I had my sus- suspicions, there would be like no data that I had to back it up. Um, you know, I, I mean, there's definitely, uh, you know, there's the, the, the fact that so many lawyers end up in all firms and the fact that law schools don't train them on how to run a business to me is like a criminal thing, right? Let's, let's just start right yeah, there. Like yeah, I find it, agree with you. I find it very upsetting that, um, it, you're saying like, I think the data that I have is about like 88% of all lawyers in the country are in a firm of 25 people or less. And, um, and the vast majority of people are in um, firms of five people or less. And they're not trained for this. So, it, you know, learning how to delegate and learning how to, how like basic uh, business management te- uh, techniques are, are, are things to, that may not come naturally to somebody that hasn't been trained. But a lot of law firms do employ a, an IT person. But the IT person in a law firm, as we've seen, uh, very greatly in terms of their competence. So you can have some people that really know what they're doing and that have uh, that are mature and have very robust operations, or you can have fly-by-night guys working out of the back of their Scion that are configuring the IT infrastructure of a law firm. And it's so so if they're outsourcing things, which most of them are, then then that's a good thing. The danger is when I think people think they know more than they do. And that's when I think you have a lot of lawyers who like are kind of taking it upon themselves to configure things and trying to keep things secure. And that's when things get out of hand pretty quickly. Well, I think on top of that is this, uh, the, the, one, the one kind of underlying theme that I always write about when I talk about security is this idea of awareness. You can't handle any problem unless you know what that problem is. It's, it's, the, uh, it's the great line from uh, the movie Tommy Boy. It's, it's uh, she said you went a little heavy on the uh, pine tree uh, air fresheners as well as a taxi cab air fresheners. Well, the responses, great, you've pinpointed it. Step two is washing it off. You know, <laughs> you have to know where a problem, what a problem is, and where it comes from before you can necessarily address it. And it occurs to me that most lawyers don't have the time to truly and fully understand all of the risks and the ones that actually listen to their IT people to truly get a grasp of what they need to do to address. The problem is a small number, and I think you're right also in that there's a, an, an IT competence question. How can small firms really get over that awareness hump? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, there's a couple things that I think law firms need to know. Um, and keep in mind, I, I come at this uh, from the perspective of somebody who built a cloud system. Like Rocket Matter was a system that I built initially before I started selling it, and now I don't get to engineer anymore, and I unfortunately have to run things. But that said, so I, I'm like one of these completely paranoid people. 
And um, as time go- and and so I I look at things from what you need to do to build a system to keep it secure. But then what was really interesting is I did this exercise uh, where. Um, I looked at the recent breaches with like Sony and Home Depot and some of these other ones that were high profile on news and, and how they really happened. And really there were a couple things that were happening that enabled most of these breaches. Number one is that passwords were stolen in a lot of the cases and um, from IT administrators or other people. Um, so pass- it really security kind of starts with password protection and password security. So um, I, I think the most fundamental things, and, and I know a lot of law firms don't want to hear this, is, is, is that your passwords are critical. And they need to be good. In other words, they can't be the most common two passwords, which are one, two, three, four, five, six, or password. They have to be a combination of like letters and numbers and uppercase things and, and so on and so forth. And they need to be changed with some regularity. Um, if you have the tolerance for it, change them as much as once a quarter. Um, change them as much as you know twice a year. And... Um, one thing that we're thinking of doing here is we're thinking of forcing a system-wide password reset just because theft of passwords is a major issue. So um, if, if it's difficult for people to manage their passwords, um, there's a lot of good tools out there. You probably could recommend some, but the one that I use is 1Password. That's, that's, and, my, that's my favorite too. Yeah, it's great because um, it can generate these long, horrible passwords for you. Exactly. You don't have to think about them. Um, you know, You have access to it everywhere. And um, it, it's a really good way to, to enforce these kind of rules. Um, the other thing that is shocking is that there is really no excuse for not keeping software up to date for security updates. And that goes, that goes for the Mac, it goes for the PC as well. So the reason for this is, is because a lot of the uh, attacks that happen once people had access to a system were um, via these things called zero-day attacks. Now, a zero-day attack is... Um, attack where the software manufacturer has no time to respond to it. In other words, they have zero days to respond to it. So what happens is, is that there's this big black market out there, believe it or not. Um, the black market is the huge driver behind all of this, by the way. So, so on the black market, um, you can get these, att- you, can, you can buy vulnerabilities. So if I say, okay, this system is using Windows and so on and so forth for like a thousand bucks, I can buy this vulnerability, apply it, and I get keys to the kingdom inside of a network, okay? These zero-day attacks, you can buy them for up up to like $250,000. They're valuable, right? So once somebody goes into a system, they can run a zero-day attack, and then they can do all sorts of horrible things to a system. Now, what that means is that whenever you get an update from Microsoft or or, or Apple, or any other software provider that you use that's a security update, you have absolutely no excuse not to apply that. Because if it's applied, that means that there's a vulnerability out there that bad guys have exploited. And so by not, by not applying those patches, you are just a sitting target. So you absolutely have to, have to, have to, have to apply any security updates as soon as you get them from your software people. Um, so by, and those are two of the most fundamental things that you can do. If you do those two things, if you apply your patches to, to your servers and to your, the, your laptops and your computers that you're using and you use good password policies, that goes a long, long, long way to preventing even the most atrocious attacks from happening. All right. We are talking about cybersecurity with Larry Port, CEO of Rocket Matter, and you are listening to it on the Legal Technology Review. <laughs> You're 
listening to Legal Technology Review on the Cyber Advocate. The show is powered by B&R Concepts for all of your law firm's IT and technology needs. Don't forget to follow all the latest on technology and tools for legal professionals at www.thecyberadvocate.com. back talking about cybersecurity with Larry Port. I'd uh, like to take this opportunity to remind our listeners that if you're enjoying this podcast, uh, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Uh, it helps out a lot and we'd really appreciate it. Larry, I want to take just a, a couple minutes away from our cybersecurity topic and ask you tell us a little bit about Rocket Matter. So Rocket Matter is a company that I started back in 2007. I started building it. It's a practice management, time and billing, cloud-based application. Um, it was really crazy back then. Um, you know, I was working for, I'm a software engineer, so I was working for another company at the time and looking for an opportunity. And um, all these lawyers were talking about their, like, it was hard for them to, like, automate their practices and they had bad software. So I looked around and I, I took a look and I don't even, I'm not even going to shy away from naming these things by name, but, like, I saw Time Matters and I saw Amica's attorney and I saw all these, like, desktop-based softwares that required you to run Windows. And I'm like, this, how could this possibly be? I mean... 2007, at that point, like Salesforce was the dominant player. I was working for a web-based HR and payroll company. So I naively went and built Rocket Matter. <laughs> and, um, and believe it or not, it, it started to get picked up by the Mac users. Um, it started to get picked because they had no software and no, no options. And they, they, their you know, design has always been um, part of Rocket Matter's like, branding and, and product. I mean, I used to be um, – I'm a photographer – um, you know, I used to be a film major and so on and so forth. So, so visuals have always been like a critical part of, uh, of the product. So, you know, the Mac users, they appreciated the design and they appreciated the, um, the, the usability of the product and they pay a premium for design and so on and so forth. So, and they evangelized too. So it started to catch on in the Mac circles and then eventually it crossed over to windows. And now, you know, years later we have thousands of law firms on our systems and we pioneered SaaS software along with um, Clio in Vancouver. So, um, you know, it felt really good to be part of this, like, whole movement where we were bringing cloud computing to the legal community. So right now we emphasize time of billing, practice management. That's pretty much our, our bread and butter. So people do their invoices with us, and they can bill from anywhere. They have the mobile devices, the iPhones, the droids, the iPads, that kind of thing. So that, that's how we got started. Yeah, and I, I must say that uh, when it comes to design, I, and this is how you and I first started talking, was I had done a full review of your system as I compared it to my case in Clio, and all three of your systems, you know, none of them, none of them were perfect. All of them were works in progress, and I, I've actually always thought it was really cool how the way the three companies and and, and others have actually, through helpful competition, have you you make each other better. You. The, the the war of updates is amazing. There's constant improvement. You're not waiting two years for the next version's release because each one of your systems has is constantly trying to get better. And I've always I've always really admired that. And I thought uh, when we first started talking was immediately after the release of the uh, Rocket Matter iPad app. And I actually it's it still it impresses me through being really the only one that I've seen that that fully takes advantage of the iPads. Well, tablets really the unique ability to have size of a desktop layout, but being mobile, and the, the design principles have been phenomenal. I really appreciate that. I, I agree with you. I think that um, I, I don't know that legal 
consumers are really quite aware of how good of the options that they have. Um, you know, and, and I do think a lot of that has been driven, especially between, um, you know, the, the competition between us and, and Clio. So, you know, Rocket Matter releases something, then Clio releases something, and so on and so forth. And the, and, and the offerings have gotten good. And they're well run, we're well run, and um, the result is a product that's really not expensive at all um, for, for law firms. And um, it does a, tremendously amount, a tremendous amount of powerful stuff. So yeah, I think I think the the winners here are legal consumers. I don't know that other professional verticals have such a good selection of software, but I don't really know that for a fact. Uh, I would, as an opinion, I would I would echo the echo that. Although I, I there's enough coming out that I can't afford to review <laughs> uh, because not everyone is nice enough to offer me a 30 day free trial. Um, so now I, I had Joshua Lennon from Clio on, on this program, and I asked him this question, so I have to ask you. Uh, is there anything that uh, you are able to, allowed to, permitted to share with uh, users of Rocket Matter or people who are maybe considering Rocket Matter that we should be looking forward to or anything you're particularly excited about uh, in the near future for Rocket Matter? Yeah, there's a lot coming out. There's a lot coming down the pike. Um, so um, one thing is that... Um, so there's some, I don't know if this is boring or not, but we're looking at QuickBooks Online integration because we really want to make sure we nail that. Um, we didn't want to just roll out any integration. Our our, our integration with QuickBooks originally is uh, was really good. I was really happy that we didn't have like a download, import, and pray type of situation that it actually syncs through QuickBooks itself. But the problem is, is that there's real clear indications coming out of Intuit that they're going to sunset that puppy and that they're going to try and move everybody to the cloud. So like they're they're saying that they're gonna like start shutting down some of our API access to the, um, in other words, they're gonna limit the programming ability against uh, Quick Top, Quick uh, Quicken Desktop, the QuickBooks Desktop. So um, that's something that law firms should be thinking about. So we're gonna that be is, working. That is quick- good. That is a good piece of advice. That's and that good that's to know. coming from that's coming from the inside angle, right? Of like <laughs> what we're seeing out of the developer information. Um, so you know we're working on a QuickBooks Online integration. That's a really really good one. Um, that's not just lip service. Check off the box. Yes, we have that feature. Um, we're working on very sophisticated reporting for law firms. Um, this is probably going to be an advanced premium package that we're going to be able to do, but it's going to really be able to help law firms drill into um, how profitable they are and how um, productive they are, uh, especially across matters, across different users, and so on and so forth. You know, we have a lot of small and solo law firms, but we have a lot of larger law firms coming on board too. And that's stuff that's very valuable to them. Try to help figure out how to pay their different partners that are bringing in different business origination fees, things like that. Definitely, um, big, definitely big data integration. That's for sure. For sure, um, you know we're looking at um, uh, a real slick ability to do uh, matter-based templating, um, so that you can configure a matter and have it, um, you know, basically replicate that the, you know the task that you want for that matter the counter that you want for that matter so that if you have certain types of cases in certain jurisdictions it just like streamlines the ability to set those things up so um all that stuff is stuff that we're working on right now and um you know we just as we do with everything we just want to continue making the current set of offerings that we have just like better meaning faster better interfaces you know it, it's very cool with web-based software that you can run all these experiments and say, okay, well, users seem to respond to this interface better or that interface better. So it really helps dictate the direction of the product. Now, we were talking before about uh, some of the interesting 
things that law firms need to pay attention to, passwords and updates being among them. And one of the things that you, you discussed was this whole concept of the zero-day update. Uh, I was reading recently uh, a report. It was, on, it was actually on Wired. They were talking about a presentation given at the, a Black Hat USA conference by Dan Gere, his 10 policy recommendations. And one of them was actually was interesting to me. It was the idea that the government could actually corner the uh, vulnerability market by buying up zero-day exploits. But he had some other interesting suggestions as well, some of which I agreed with, some of which I, I didn't. But one of the biggest ones, and I really wanted to ask you about this being a software guy, is the concept of essentially making sure or changing the, the way that cyber liability is dealt with by making software designers and, and engineers responsible for any exploits. How do you feel about the idea that the companies that make and distribute the software should have more liability if there's if they're vulnerable to attack? Well, uh, obviously, I don't want that to happen, um, being a software company ourselves. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that, um, you know, it, we try and safeguard our systems as much as humanly possible. And, you know, um, I think there's this misconception in the in the the general press that or is that most of these things are really high tech attacks and and the truth of the matter is is that they're not that high tech they're like very human oriented they're like social engineering based attacks i mean there are the zero day vulnerabilities um that get discovered um and those are forever going to be like uh difficult for companies like microsoft and apple to to um to deal with uh, because, you know what I mean, like, that's your rite of passage. You're like a young hacker in Russia, and you want to make your mark on the world. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to try and find these things, you know? So you're going to have, you know, you have thousands and thousands of people trying to make their mark doing that. That's a very hard thing to combat. And, um, I mean, I think, I think yes, I think these things are, I, I don't think making the software companies, obviously, I, I'm not in favor of that, but I don't think making the software companies, uh, um, you know, liable for that, would be helpful. I, I think the real emphasis needs to be on, um, you know, preventing the human-based attacks. So, you know, I mean, most people, like, look at Edward Snowden. He's the classic example of, that is the biggest, probably most sensitive breach in the history of humanity. And that was done by a disgruntled person. It's really funny, when you, you, when you look for, um, if you do a keyword search for, like, disgruntled employee and recognizing the signs of them, You'll as likely find those on on cybersecurity kind of websites like CNET's like uh, cyber section or whatever than you are on like some sort of psychology thing because that's like one of the most critical things, right? Is those are the people that are going to be stealing your information. Well, um, the uh, the the psych psychology stats just on uh, employees who may be willing to commit embezzlement are pretty amazing. That it doesn't it doesn't actually take as much as you would think, and it's something that way more people than you would think are likely to do, that's what you've got to be worried about. I, I think so. I mean, I think, like, the... I think the, the, from, from a security standpoint, if you, if you want to be worried about security and, and what truly are your biggest risks, you have to look at the human factors. You have to look at what passwords you're using, like we discussed. You have to keep your uh, software up to date. That's true. But, you, you know, you have to look at who has access to your critical information. Um, is it, you know, disgruntled employees? Is it employees who maybe partially, I guess, gruntled? Um, 
Is it uh, the cleaning staff? Is, is it the landlord? I mean, some of this stuff is not under lock and key in law firms, and physical theft is much more likely than cyber theft to be part of the issue. So, Yeah, even, even mean, an employee who, who doesn't care to hide where they write down their passwords, just leaves it right next to their computer, can be just as dangerous as a hacker from you know working the, in a Chinese military facility. And I don't blame people from being confused because, I mean... Um, you know, you have people that like are suspect of shopping online, but then will gladly give their credit card to a waiter who disappears with the credit card. And then, you know, you have people who maybe don't um, shop online, but then they're victim to theft anyhow because they use their credit card at Target or Home Depot that did that ended up getting breached. Um, so you don't have to be necessarily online. It's it's wherever you look. So you have to be really careful and just kind of be in as much control as you can. I, I also think, um, so, so we talked a little bit about understanding the human factors around who's near your sensitive data. We talked about password uh, policy, and we talked about keeping servers up to date. Um, the other thing that is uh, of critical importance these days is resilience and being to re- able to recover from an attack. Because um, if, if you read about the Sony attack, they downloaded something like 100 terabytes of data now, 100 terabytes of data is a number that's almost impossible to comprehend for a human mind. Um, you know, you have, um, you have a billion, and then you have a trillion. So this is 100 trillion bytes of data. I mean, that is like such a massive number, it, whatever. They, you can only download that kind of information if you're inside of a system for like a year. These people are inside of Sony systems for a year. So being able, and there's intrusion detection software that you can use. There's network monitoring software that you can use to make sure that um, these things aren't happening. So um, one of the most important things that you can do these days is to try and detect if you're being hacked and then act accordingly. So it's not just enough to keep the bad guys out. You kind of have to make the assumption that one or two bad guys may get in at some point, but you have to be able to tell that they're there. And I I actually just recently wrote a, a whole post on cyber liability insurance and that most people seem to think that that insurance is for when you get sued by your clients if you get hacked and that uh, my my whole point was that anyone who is asking that question how much money would it take in that case is asking entirely the wrong question because in some states the state of Pennsylvania just recently held that that tort doesn't exist but the amount of money that it takes to do exactly what you just described from the point you discover the hack moving forward, that those those expenses can be enormous. For everything from the outside counsel you have to bring in to your your additional uh, parachuting in IT squads. You you need rapid response. You may need public relations. You're gonna you may need to repair data. Which if you've ever had to just even having to go and get a failing hard drive repaired is remarkably expensive. <laughs> If you're enjoying this podcast, you can really help us out by heading over to iTunes, look up the Cyber Advocates Legal Technology Review, and go ahead and leave us a rating and review. We appreciate it. It really help us out. And if you'd like, go ahead and leave your Twitter handle. That way we'll be able to thank you for taking the time. We're talking with Larry Port of Rocket Matter about cybersecurity. Larry? One more thing I wanted to cover with you. What is the one thing that you would like to see law firms, be they big or small, do starting today or starting this week that can help 
protect them from cyber threats? It's hard to narrow it down to one thing, but ultimately they just have to be educated, you know? Um, I mean, that's kind of, I know that's kind of like wishing for more wishes, so that's not really fair, but um, they need to be educated about what the true risks are and what they aren't, you know? So they need to learn a little bit about password policy. They need to learn a little bit about um, keeping their servers up to date. They need to learn about network monitoring. They need to learn that they're just as likely to have things happen from, you know, people than, you know, like some sort of like Russian hacker. And, and, and so those are some of the things I think that they, that they should think about. To me, the next immediate step is there's making sure that everyone who's there knows that when you're saying educate, it's not just the managing partner. The, you know, everyone from the managing partner down to the receptionist across to the paralegal's office, associates, they all need to know why these policies and, and uh, procedures exist and what they're trying to prevent and, quite frankly, the consequences of uh, inattention and security breaches. Without that awareness, you're not going to get the buy-in that you need. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Um, the classic example of that is the J.P. Morgan uh, Chase hack. So they, this is a company that spends $250 million on cybersecurity, and someone got in. And the reason they got in, because there was this one area of their web uh, site where somebody, there was a login page that wasn't protected against certain types of attacks, and people got in that way. So, you know, you can, even though they have a bulletproof, infrastructure is just like uh, the rivets on the Titanic. You had these like one weaknesses and it caused the whole thing to collapse. So if you, you can be doing everything perfect with the managing partners and everything, but all it takes is one employee not doing the right thing and you're toast. And I, was, I, was, I would echo that with, uh, with the Anthem hack to find out that all, that all they needed was one password because all the data that they stole from Anthem was unencrypted because it was not convenient to work with they're outside vendors. They didn't want to have to decrypt their data every time their vendors wanted access to it, something that they admitted would have t taken an extra 30 to 60 seconds per transaction, but they just it wasn't convenient, so they didn't encrypt the data. So 80 million customers' health data was stolen unencrypted from the Anthem's, from Anthem's servers. Well, Larry, I want to uh, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much. M much appreciate you taking the time. No, I appreciate the opportunity, and good luck with this uh, podcast. It's very exciting. Thank you, and we are going to have to have you back again. I know you're, you're putting out a book, and I, I would certainly love to be part of that PR tour. Yeah, wonderful. So, uh, and enjoy your vacation. Thank you. And th thank you for joining us. This has been the Legal Technology Review, part of the Cyber Advocate, and I am Brian Folk for our guest, Larry Port of Rocket Matter. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Yeah.